Myth vs. Medicine, Debunking Grey's Anatomy is an educational and entertainment podcast created and produced by Anna Zarov and Olivia Horrigan. If you would like to know more about our show, check out our website at mythvsmedpod.com and join our email list. If you enjoy our show, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Now let's get on to the episode. Ever wonder how animal organs can be used to save a life? Find out on this week's episode of Myth vs. Medicine, Debunking Grey's Anatomy. I'm Anna. And I'm Olivia. And we're medical students at the University of Michigan. Join us as we unpack the next episode of one of our favorite medical dramas, Grey's Anatomy. It's a beautiful day to learn what is myth and what is medicine. Disclaimer. Our thoughts and opinions may not reflect those of the University of Michigan hospital system or the University of Michigan Medical School and are not intended to be used in place of medical advice. We are currently in training and are not qualified to provide medical advice. Please consult your doctor for medical management or further questions. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Myth vs. Medicine. Hi, guys. Welcome back. We're having a beautiful day out here. I've got the sun shining on me while I'm recording. We love it. It has been so nice and sunny. Such a difference for Michigan. <laughs> I know, I know. Usually usually not like this. So funny. Well, I'm really excited to get into this episode. It is just chock full of ethical insanity. Yes, always. No surprise there. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to go ahead and start our episode summary? Sure do. So in this episode... Meredith is growing increasingly dissatisfied with the fact that she knows nothing about Derek's life. Meanwhile, Alex is treating a patient whose religious beliefs jeopardize her chances for recovery, and Izzy contemplates reconnecting with her estranged mother. Also, a pregnant woman who has been diagnosed with cancer disagrees with Christina's medical advice. All of the interns throughout the episode are mystified by a patient who's been treating for seizures, but who thinks that he's actually psychic. Oh, gosh, the psychic gets me every time. I know, he's... Absolutely wild. Do we actually want to start our quick catches about this guy? Because I feel like we I have think a lot. we should. Yes. All right. Do you want to get started? Yeah. So the first one that I had was just when they were doing this handoff. You see Meredith and Christina are talking to this other doctor. He's saying he's your patient now. He's having seizures. So he's a neuropatient. You guys need to take him. And mm-hmm. Meredith and Christina are saying, it's psych. Don't give him to us. We don't want this. Uh-huh. And I just thought this was funny because for just a basic seizure workup like this, he's right. He should be handed off to neuro, but neurology, not neurosurgery. At this point, there is no clear indication that this man needs neurosurgery. So I thought it was kind of weird that that was who they consulted. Yeah, they immediately go to surgery, even though he really just needs a basic neurology service. I also noticed during this scene, the doctor had said that he had already had two seizures. And then Meredith Mm -hmm. and Christina go and to the room and then he proceeds to have another seizure right in front of them and mm-hmm. all this time this patient is not on EEG and we have yes. talked about EEG a lot it's the type of brain scan that they do to measure the brain waves that might show your seizure activity and for somebody who is having recurrent seizures in the hospital they're going to be on continuous EEG absolutely so that you can look at these seizures and see what's going on especially during this handoff I thought it was kind of wild that nobody had thought to try to actually measure the so-called seizures that they think that he's having Yes, looking at his brain and what it's doing while he's having these quote-unquote seizures. Yeah. So that's something that you see on literally every patient that comes in with seizures is at least, if not continuous EEG, some kind of EEG study to prove that they are seizures versus not seizures. That was a good catch. Yeah, what do you have? So mine has more to do with his place in the hospital. So we see him coming to the neurosurgery service. Mm-hmm. And later on in the episode, we see the patient who has the spinal injury down in the emergency room where he should be. And then all of a sudden, Mr. Duff, the seizure patient, comes and whips the curtain out of the way. And says, <laughs> it's not all in your head, man. It's not all in your head. You're real. I believe you. Maybe there is no physiological reason. And he's just having a conversion reaction. You think it's psychosomatic? It is not. 
not in your head, man. I believe you. Mr. Duff, please. It's so funny. I'm like, when did Mr. Duff get to the ED? I'm so confused. <laughs> I know, and Izzy's like chasing him around. I'm like, is this man just wandering the hospital telling everyone his psychic visions? I know, and Izzy just closes the door. She's like, all right, Mr. Duff, that's enough. <laughs> like, okay. There's also a part where Bailey is in surgery, and the patient who she's operating on is like, I hear there's a psychic. Is this man just running loose in the hospital? Yeah, apparently everyone knows about this patient. Yeah, I don't know, the psychic, the psychic guy was so interesting to me because when I was working before medical school in the emergency room, I actually had a patient who I met who was convinced that he was psychic. No way. He believed so many conspiracy theories and kept trying to sell me on all of them. Oh my god. It was the most surreal experience I think I've had with a patient. Oh my gosh, I'm sure. Was this on psych? So no, this was when I was doing a research study. So I would recruit patients to do this research study. And Mm -hmm. something that usually takes about an hour ended up taking three and a half hours because this guy just kept talking. And I was so determined. The entire interaction was just absolutely chaotic sounds pretty interesting honestly it was it was kept my day interesting at least i'm sure so do you have any more for mr duff the so-called psychic yeah something i thought that was kind of interesting was during one of his seizures while christina is in the room you see him kind of staring into space and he kind of has these back and forth eye movements which can be a presentation that you see when somebody is having a seizure and then christina pulls out her pen light to look at his pupils and his pupils do look pretty dilated when we first see them and then Mm -hmm. she shines the light in his eyes and they actually don't constrict and I was kind of curious I know I don't know if it was just maybe the light in the room was such that maybe it was too bright in the room already and so there wasn't enough of a difference or maybe it was a special effect but so weird I know I was like how did they do that I I don't know I I didn't even catch that so I don't know how you saw that Yeah, I've replayed it a couple times. Yeah, very interesting. And then the only other thing I wanted to say about Mr. Duff is that in the end, they diagnose him with an arteriovenous malformation or an AVM, and they say that this is the cause of his seizures. And this was just a great little throwback, yeah, to episode one when we saw Katie, who was having these seizures, and that ended up being what was causing her seizures despite the fact that Derek said that was a one in a million case. I was just going to say. We have another one. We have another one. Yes, this is proof that it is, in fact, again, not one in a million case. So So funny. Oh, my gosh. Such a good throwback. That feels like so long ago that we did the first episode. I know. What a journey we've had, guys. Okay, so next quick catch that I want to go into is the whole George, Alex, Olivia intubation sequence that we see. Mm -hmm. So we first start with George and Alex with this patient. They're by themselves in the room trying to intubate this patient. So put a tube down their throat so they can breathe. And first of all, they're taking so long to do this. So when you're intubating, the patient isn't getting any oxygen. And so normally you want to do it as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. But they are just taking their sweet little time. Alex is pounding George to do better george is like what the heck i don't know what i'm doing well and then the nurse is saying his o2 is dropping you gotta move faster yeah and they're just doing it by themselves there's no one there we don't know what reason they're doing it for usually what i've seen in the hospital is that a rapid response team comes and there's anesthesiologists there and there's respiratory therapists there it's pretty urgent it's just so calm burke's just standing out the window watching them until he comes in and fixes it all judgy yeah Oh, gosh. Well, and so then some things that I noticed that they said. So Alex's 
yelling at George. And one of the things he says is don't break any teeth, which is actually a real thing that they teach us. When mm-hmm. you are intubating someone, you take that tool that George had. It's called a laryngoscope. It basically helps you look at the larynx, which is the tube that connects down to your lungs that you're sticking the intubation tube down. Mm-hmm. And if you move the laryngoscope at the wrong angle, it's actually a pretty common complication to break teeth. Yes, yes. And have you ever seen that before? I have interview. Yes. So it was no awful. Way. So, and it's interesting because the patient that had the teeth broken had really bad teeth. She was a chronic smoker and just had a lot of gingival or, or gum disease. And yeah. so I think her teeth were just really sensitive to it. But it was the first time I've actually seen it happen. And they were just like, oh, whoops. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Oh. Okay. But it really doesn't happen very often. Yeah. It's one of those things that in an emergent situation, the intubation is going to be more important than your teeth. Like you would rather you be breathing and toothless than keep your teeth and not get the intubation. But obviously the ideal would be that we are not breaking any teeth. Yes. That's the only time I've ever seen it happen. One thing I also thought was cool that was true that they did in this was Mm -hmm. when when George asked Olivia to hold crike pressure. So crike is your cricothyroid, which is a little piece of cartilage in your neck that basically if you push on it while you're trying to intubate someone, it brings the trachea and the vocal cords and where you're trying to go into better view. And Mm -hmm. so this is what he was referring to. And so I thought that was cool. I was like, yeah, they did it. Yeah. All this terminology, they're getting it. (laughs) Yeah, actually getting things right for once. One thing that they didn't get right, or Uh I guess that George didn't get right. I was going to say, this one was on George and I don't know what was going on with him but this first time that he's trying to intubate he intubates the esophagus so the trachea and the esophagus are the two tubes one going to your lungs and one going to your stomach that are next to each other and george is looking and he's saying he can't see anything and he goes the anatomy is all messed up in here and i'm like george (laughs) come on and then after alex is yelling at him saying you intubated the esophagus george is continuing to squeeze the bag of oxygen even though he now knows that it is not going to his lungs and i was like george George, don't do that because you don't like, want to blow air into somebody's stomach either. No, no, not at all. Oh my God. Oh, so that whole intubation sequence was hilarious. But I also thought it was so cool that we got to see Burke do really good teaching because the second time that George tried to intubate, he got it on the first try. So, and that was such a happy moment. He was so proud of himself. Growth. Good job, George. Aw, George. What's your next quick catch? This one has to do with the breast cancer patient that we saw during this episode. So she yeah. has advanced breast breast cancer, but she's also pregnant and she's 47 years old. So very advanced age for pregnancy. They were kind of talking about the treatment options and what would happen if she kept the baby versus not. And one thing that they got correct when they were talking about this is that Bailey and Christina were saying, you know, if you keep this pregnancy going, the hormones that result from pregnancy will increase the rate of growth of your breast cancer, which Mm -hmm. is true. So if you have a breast cancer that we call estrogen or progesterone positive, those are hormones Mm -hmm. that are produced very highly in pregnancy. And so if you have a pregnancy while also having breast cancer, the risk that your breast cancer grows exponentially more than it would if you didn't have a baby growing in you is very high. So they were totally spot on with that. Yeah, it's a really hard situation. Something that I noticed in this case also was at the beginning of the episode are doing the biopsy of her cancer. Bailey Mm -hmm. is operating and she actually says as she's doing it, I got the lump. And this is referring to a lump of the breast that they are removing in order to biopsy the cancer Mm -hmm. in a procedure that is often known as a lumpectomy. It's basically a partial removal of the breast tissue. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about 
types of breast biopsies. There are several types. One of them is fine needle aspiration, and one of them is core needle biopsy. Both of these are procedures that are usually image-guided, and you basically take a big needle that can take out some of the tissue. Surgical biopsy, however, is a real thing that is done, especially when there is concern that the cancer is already advanced. However, there was one thing that I noted, and this, again, is it could go either way technically, but generally for the other kinds of procedures that are less invasive, they would use local anesthesia, so numb up the area, the patient would still be awake. Mm-hmm. In this surgery, we also see the patient still awake. And I think more often than not, you would probably use general anesthesia and this patient would not be awake during the procedure. There are some situations where it is possible to do this kind of biopsy with local anesthesia and a patient might be awake during the surgery, from my research anyway, but I think that this would be a little bit less likely in this situation. That's a really good point. And then we don't see this happen, but we hear them talk about it, is that the patient does decide to go through with terminating the pregnancy and then treating her cancer at first, and then she at first. End up, ends up flip-flopping. But yeah. Christina and Bailey are talking about doing a DNC, which is a dilation and curatage, which is a way of performing a medical abortion where you kind of scrape the inner lining of the uterus to mm-hmm. evacuate the fetus. This was actually, I think, good protocol on what they did in the show versus what happens in reality is that Bailey's asking Christina if she's done one of these procedures before and she says oh we learned in school and Bailey says all right well I'll get an OB resident and they'll kind of supervise you while doing it I think that was pretty realistic because it probably would be an OB resident joining the team rather than just Bailey and Christina doing it by themselves because obviously the obstetrician residents have much more experience with something like this definitely I agreed that was probably good protocol. That is a strictly OB-GYN procedure. There's not Mm. a time that you would do a DNC that would not be for an OB-GYN related cause. It's literally a procedure on your uterus. Yes, yes. So yeah, that's all I had for the breast cancer patient. And then uh, again, we do see that she originally decides the DNC and then goes back and says, no, never mind. Right. And we will talk a little bit more about the ethical implications of that later in the show. Mm -hmm. Especially with Christina's interactions with the patient. So this was something that I wanted to bring up because I realized, guys, we're so sorry. Last episode, (laughs) we left you with such a big cliffhanger. And if you've already seen the show, you knew what it was. But we talked about how Christina had had the flu or thought she had the flu and then got some big news, which was at the end of episode seven, we learned that Christina is in fact pregnant. Ah! And we totally forgot to actually talk about it. We did. I'm so sorry, you guys. We didn't realize it until after we recorded the episode. Yeah, just totally forgot to drop that bomb on y'all. And so... One of the quick catches that I had with Christina and all of her personal pregnancy-related things, and we'll get into more of the ethics of this in terms of Christina's bedside manner and, you know, some problematic comments that she might make with that. Mm -hmm. But I actually, I felt really bad for her in this because I thought she started the episode actually by doing the right thing, which Mm -hmm. was after she was seeing the psychic patient, somehow he knows that she's pregnant. He goes, can you see me? Can you hear me? Stay with me. Wouldn't have picked you for the mommy track, Nurse Betty. I know! I I was like, oh! And she knows that this is too personal for her. She knows that Mm -hmm. she's too close to this and that she doesn't want to be talking about that and she doesn't want people to know about this. Mm -hmm. And so she takes herself off the case. And not only does she take herself off the case, but she agrees to do Bailey's post-op notes for a month in order to get off the case. Which is a lot. You know, we see Meredith and Izzy 
all the time getting way too close to their cases. And Bailey talks about this in the episode, too. She's saying, yeah. Izzy, you are too involved with your patients. Don't make everything so personal. Yes. And Christina here does the right thing by saying, this is too personal. I don't want to do this case. And uh-huh. of course, then she ends up on the pregnant cancer patient. Well, so bad. Her and Izzy basically swap. Izzy gets the psychic patient and then Christina gets the pregnant patient with cancer. Yeah, I felt bad for her. Did you have any other quick catches? I don't actually, but I have quite a few great quick catches for our first case if we want to get into it. All right, then let's get into our first case. We are going to be learning about the patient who came in with ascending paralysis. So starting at the toes and then just his whole body just starts to become paralyzed. Yeah, this is pretty scary. We see this patient in the ED. He has no sensation. At first, he says that it was started in his feet and it's been moving up. Meredith refers to this as creeping paralysis, which is something that you might hear. And you see Derek doing all of his neurologic tests. We've talked a little bit about these in the past. He has his little spiky roller that he uses to test sensation. And this patient says at this point he has no sensation below his thighs. And we also see Derek trying to test his strength, trying to get him to move his toes, trying to get Mm -hmm. him to hold up his legs, and he's not able to do this. Mm -hmm. We start out with Derek trying to figure out what is going on with this patient. They start by getting a spinal x-ray, and Derek looks at the x-ray and he says, the films are normal. So he says... I need a stat MRI, hmm. send an intern with him, make it Meredith Gray. Of course, Gray. <laughs> of course. I was going to say, so this is actually interesting and something that I wanted to talk about because we've talked a lot in the past about how it is a little silly and not a great use of time that the doctors are always going to imaging with their patients and sitting mm. around for their whole scans and waiting to read the scans. In most situations, this is still true. But I actually was just talking to a friend of mine. Her name's Abby, and she is a surgical intern. And she actually is going to be coming on the show next week. So get excited. Yes! We're going to have a special guest to tell us a lot more about this than I can right now. Yes. But something that she mentioned is that when a patient is very unstable, they often will send, especially an intern, to go to imaging with this patient just to keep an eye on them. And so for this patient who is having basically progressive neurologic deficits. He's Mm -hmm. having this paralysis that is moving up his body. Things are changing pretty quickly. It actually, I think, was a good call to have a doctor with him, keeping an eye on him, making sure that nothing Mm -hmm. is changing very quickly and that he's not needing to be rushed into surgery or have more emergent intervention. And not just any doctor, Dr. Gray. Dr. Gray. Because apparently Derek just needs Meredith on all of his surgeries. Obviously. 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 Big episode for Meredith and Derek here. Yes. Yes. So one quick catch that I saw for this patient interaction is that they get this MRI and Meredith and Derek are seen kind of huddling around it saying, oh, look at this. Oh, there's no abnormalities. Da, 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 da. Have you ever seen a surgical intern and a neurosurgeon reading their own MRIs or x-rays? Every time that you get imaging on a patient, you can look at the scans before the radiologists have a chance to look at it and give their opinion. But usually you're waiting for the interpretation by the radiologist before you actually do something with the patient because you're not the expert at looking at the pictures the radiologists are. I know. And I mean, okay, so it is a good thing, I think, for doctors, especially doctors in training, to have experience with looking at imaging and to Mm -hmm. kind of give their best shot at reading it before they look at the radiology report. And that's something, at least in teaching 
that I think we get a lot. We'll have mm-hmm. a resident tell us, go look at this CT or go look at this MRI mm-hmm. and tell me what you think you see without looking at the radiology report to just yeah. learn a little bit about reading imaging. So I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but agreed that in this show, we almost always see the surgeons reading their own imaging and we never see radiology. I remember a couple episodes ago, there was a case where I thought that we had had a pretty clear diagnosis. And then one of the interns was saying, oh, I just heard from radiology and blah, blah, blah. So uh-huh. now you're using radiology. So now using it. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Always at the wrong times. Always. But anyway, as Derek and Meredith are looking at this MRI, Derek says, this is weird. I don't know what's causing this. He says, I expected to see a protrusion into the spinal space or a bony spur into the nucleus pulposus. Basically, what he's saying is that he thinks that there is a lesion, what he calls a pressure lesion, something that would be pushing on the spinal cord that would be causing this paralysis. And basically, when you have a lesion like this, you would expect to see that you could start to have paralysis anywhere below that lesion. So we'll talk a little Mm -hmm. bit more about that as we see what happens when they do finally do this surgery but they don't see this in the imaging so from there Meredith and Derek get into this spat about Mm -hmm. whether or not to operate on this patient Meredith is kind of taking the stance of we don't see anything on imaging I don't think that there is anything that is physically wrong with this man's spinal cord and she mentions that she thinks that this patient might be having a conversion reaction this is something really interesting that I wanted to mention because it is also a real thing that we see fairly frequently in real Mm -hmm. life. So basically what conversion disorder is, a patient will start to demonstrate neurologic symptoms. So that can be paralysis, that can be other neurologic issues. Weakness, numbness, tingling. Yeah, this usually starts pretty suddenly. It's usually a pretty abrupt onset and it is actually caused psychosomatically. So if you have a very major stressor in your life, or there is something going on and you are in severe distress, you can basically present as if you have a neurologic lesion. Like we hear the lovely Mr. Duff say, it's not in your head, man. I believe you. (laughs) A conversion disorder, I think, is an interesting thing because it is psychosomatic, but I think that it would be a big stretch to say somebody was making this up. This is something Mm -hmm. that you really don't have a lot of control over. And the treatment for it is going to be more psychological Mm -hmm. treatment, but you get very real physical symptoms. I actually have seen another example recently in pop culture of conversion disorder. Olivia, have you seen the show Never Have I Ever? I haven't. Okay, well, great show. Would highly recommend. Super fun show. But part of the premise at the beginning is we have this high school girl who's the main character. Her father dies suddenly, creating this very big stressor in her life. And as a result, she develops a conversion disorder where she loses all sense sensation and strength in her legs and ends up in a wheelchair and is not able to walk oh and they are very worried what is neurologically wrong with her and she ends up being diagnosed with a conversion disorder and she ends up recovering from that that's so fascinating i know i actually think i watched that before i started med school and i had never heard of a conversion disorder before that was how i first heard about it oh interesting i feel like it's so cool when they put stuff like that into pop culture because it's just something that you don't always hear a lot about that there's not always awareness brought to it and so i feel like Totally. For them to put it in a big show like that is really interesting. Yeah, it was cool. It's interesting and it's, it's really difficult for patients because a lot of times they've been to lots of specialists, they've been to lots of doctors, no one can figure out what's wrong with them. And Derek's kind of adamant. He's saying, you know, I don't think that's what this is. And she is very yeah. persistent saying, you know, 
this just doesn't make any sense. We are not seeing anything on imaging, so why should we take him to surgery when Mm -hmm. this could not even be a real physical disease? So like you said, Meredith and Derek do kind of have this debate over what is the right thing to do, whether to operate on this man or not. And this kind of goes along with a lot of the ethical principles that we talked with you guys about in the last episode. So we talked about the fact that there are these two principles, beneficience, which means you are going to do everything that you can to provide the proper care for your patient. You're going to do procedures when they need a procedure. You're going to provide them the treatment when they need the treatment. And then non-maleficence, which means that you are not going to provide a unnecessary procedure. You're not going to do anything to put your patient in harm's way. And so we talked about those a bit last time. And I sort of think that we see both of these in this debate that Meredith and Derek are having. So Meredith is kind of taking this stance of non-maleficence. And she's saying, what if you're wrong? Couldn't unnecessary spinal surgery do more damage? She doesn't Mm -hmm. want to put this patient at risk that he doesn't need as she thinks he actually is having a conversion disorder. Yeah. Derek, on the other hand, says... If we wait too long and this extends into his brainstem, then we'll have a paralyzed man who can't breathe. Sometimes you have to take a chance to save a life. And so what Derek is basically saying is if he has a lesion that's at the brainstem or above, the brainstem Mm -hmm. being the area at the bottom of the brain that helps you with your respiratory drive, make sure that you Mm -hmm. are able to keep breathing. Derek is worried if there's a lesion that is that high that this could really kill this man. Yeah. And so at this point, he's saying, you know, it's better to do the surgery and not find something than to do the surgery, find something and save his life. Which I think, again, one of the big tenets that he stands on during this argument with Meredith is saying, you know, I have this experience, I have this intuition, I just have a feeling that there is a bleed that we need to find and we're going to find it by cutting into him. Yeah, and I think that in the end they did the right thing. I mean, clearly we see that there was in fact a bleed and it was great that they did the surgery. Uh But before we knew that, I think you really do have to weigh the risks and benefits of what would be worse for this patient, doing an unnecessary surgery and risking damage or not doing the surgery and he dies because you didn't. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, and Meredith the entire time was saying, oh my gosh, don't do this, don't do this. And at the end, she's like, holy crap. Yes, yes. It was kind of wild to me the way Meredith talks to Derek in surgery. And I realize they are, you know, somewhat of a couple at this point. An item. (laughs) Yes, they have a relationship. She has maybe let her guard down a bit more when she's talking to him. But Mm -hmm. she's still an intern and he's still an attending. And for as much as it's good to speak up for what you believe in, and we've Mm -hmm. seen examples where she has and has been right, she really, during the surgery, was going at it saying, I don't think this was the right thing to do. And at a certain point, regardless of any other relationship, I think that she needed to be a little bit more professional. Third thoracic laminae, nothing. I think I see the dura pulsating here. No, it's not. Keep looking. We've been at this for four hours. Maybe he just injured his spinal cord and there's nothing to fix. Great. When you read your books, make sure you reference them correctly. Progressive paralysis implies a pressure illusion. My books got me here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one thing to voice your opinion and then have the attending give their opinion back and kind of reason with you. But for her to just keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing, I think was not her place. Because, again, she is a first-year intern. She has not seen the hundredth of the amount of surgeries that Derek has seen and performed. And so, at the end of the day, he is the boss and she is kind of just along for the ride at this point. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So let's get into the surgery itself because I have quite a few quick catches here. Yes. So, to start off, 
thought it was pretty funny. Per usual, the surgery begins. Nobody's wearing goggles. Nobody's wearing any kind of eye protection. But then we have a second surgery scene. We come back and suddenly everyone's wearing loops. Magic. For those of you who don't know, loops are those special kind of goggles that you see in surgery. They have pretty strong magnifying glasses that Mm -hmm. are used to get a closer look at what you're looking at in surgery. And a lot of surgeons, especially when you're operating on very precise areas like the spine Mm -hmm. or the brain, will use these. Definitely. Suddenly, they all managed to get a hold of them. Yes, apparently. Apparently. (laughs) What else did you see? So that was my first thing. I thought that was pretty funny. Another thing that happens in this surgery is that this patient we see starts to become unstable. The anesthesiologist says that his blood pressure is shooting up and that his heart rate is dropping. Mm -hmm. And Derek says, oh, this is autonomic dysreflexia. You have this very strong overreaction of your sympathetic nervous system which if you've heard of fight or flight with your nervous system that's what we're yeah. referring to this your nervous system that controls your blood pressure and heart rate and all of these things when you're in a stressful situation mm-hmm. and this is caused by spinal cord injury dysregulation of your spinal cord leading to this overactivation and this can cause mm-hmm. really life-threatening hypertension or high blood yeah. pressure this is something realistic that we might have seen in this surgery definitely however then one of the people says that they're going to give him some diazoxide. I was so confused. So it's interesting because generally this drug is used for hypoglycemia or low blood sugar in surgery, but technically it is a anti-hypertension drug. It is a Mm -hmm. drug that can be used for blood pressure if you're being Mm -hmm. technical about the way that it works. However, it really isn't what you would normally choose to use for this situation. What I found from doing the research on it is that they used to use it more in autonomic dysreflexia, but they found that it's not really great at lowering your blood pressure. It doesn't Mm -hmm. really make it that big of a change, and so they stopped using it. And so, Anna, I think you found some things that they usually use now, the first-line treatment that you would use for autonomic dysreflexia. Yeah, usually you would use for this something that is more strictly a blood pressure medication. And so Mm. calcium channel blood blockers, which are a common blood pressure medications are used. So hydralazine, nifedipine, verapamil, if you've ever heard of any of these, these are drugs that would have been probably better choices. Yeah. So calcium channel blockers are a great first option for this. Another recommended initial emergency treatment for people with really severe high blood pressure with autonomic dysreflexia is something called nitroglycerin. Mm-hmm. And nitroglycerin is a really potent vasodilator. So it dilates your blood vessels, really drops your blood pressure. And they use that a lot as well. You Definitely. might have also heard nitroglycerin in the context of heart attacks. They use this a lot for heart attacks because it, again, vasodilates so well that it can alleviate the symptoms of a heart attack. Yeah. Very interesting. So then it seems like they maybe get him a little bit more stabilized and then finally Derek does find the bleed that we were looking for voila he says that this lesion is at t2 and this means it is at the second vertebrae of the thoracic spine so there are several different parts of the spine that you may have heard of there's the cervical spine thoracic lumbar and sacral Mm -hmm. I was gonna say anytime that you have a lesion above t6 so your thoracic vertebrae number six that's when you're at a greater risk of developing this autonomic dysreflexia phenomenon Mm, very interesting. So one thing I also wanted to mention for this patient was that when you see a spinal cord lesion at the level that they found this 
bleed at, which is at T2, mm-hmm. you wouldn't really be expecting the creeping paralysis that Meredith calls it or the ascending paralysis that you see in this patient. Normally, when you're thinking about T2, you're thinking more about the lower leg. So rather than quadriplegia, which is when you have all four limbs involved, you expect more paraplegia or just the lower yeah. legs. And so this was a little bit confusing for me. I, again, I'm not an expert at neuro whatsoever, and nor do I claim to be. Yeah. And so I'm not exactly sure. But in my mind, how I think about spinal cord lesions is unless it's a very particular type of lesion or affecting a particular part of the spine, normally when you have a lesion at a level of the vertebrae, everything below that vertebrae is affected, not everything above it. And so that's what I was a little bit confused on with this patient. Yeah. And so for this patient, he starts to have numbness in his hands and up his arms. And generally, you would see more frequently a cervical lesion. So a lesion that is higher up in the spinal cord, probably closer Mm -hmm. to your neck that would cause this. Based on some of the research that I did, you can have as low as T1 might affect your hands or forearms. So it's maybe getting close, but Mm -hmm. the extent of his paralysis was maybe a bit exaggerated for where his lesion was. So we've talked a lot about our sterile fields, but something that we may not have talked about yet is what exactly consists of a sterile field. So Mm -hmm. when you're operating, anything that is on the surgical table that has been draped as part of setting up the surgery is part of your sterile field. Mm-hmm. Anything above your waist, basically, is part of the surgical field. So that's why when you are scrubbed in, you see the surgeons holding their hands up. You can't drop your hands down or you'll break the sterile field. The mm-hmm. front part of your body is sterile. However, the back side of your body, your back is not sterile. And that's because you just don't really have enough control over what is happening behind you all the time. Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. if somebody brushes by you and touches your back, if you bump into something from behind. Sometimes your gown doesn't actually close all the way in the back. Some people like Mm -hmm. it really loose and so your scrubs are exposed. Mm -hmm. Regardless, the back of your body is not part of the sterile field. If you touch your back somehow, you Mm -hmm. need to re-scrub. And during this surgery, there were a couple times that there was a scrub tech right next to Derek who just had her hands behind her back the whole time. Not where they're supposed to go. (laughs) No, 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 no. No. Whenever my arms get tired in surgery, I would just hold my hands one on top of the other and hold on to my forearms and just put my hands on my chest and just sit there like that. So (laughs) funny. Just kind of propped up. I was like, ah, this feels as comfortable as possible. And then I would find myself doing it everywhere. (laughs) It does get tiring to hold your arms up for the whole procedure. It does. It does. Speaking of scrubbing... Oh, gosh. Oh, this one was so outrageous. Yeah, Olivia, you mentioned something else about scrubbing. Tell our listeners. So normally when you scrub out of a surgery, which means you've finished the surgery, you're not going back in to see the patient, your job is done in the OR. You mm-hmm. come out of the room and you wash your hands. You don't wash your hands with the scrubbing soap that you use before you go into surgery. You- no, Soap and water, soap and water, clean yourself up. Because the whole idea is that that whole time you were sterile. You don't need to yeah. be You don't need to be again. sterile to go back into the world. Yes, yes. But you see at the end of the surgery that Meredith and Derek are having a conversation. They both grab the scrub soap and <laughs> then they're wiping themselves off. You can see Derek has yellow soap all over Literally his covered arms. in him. He doesn't even rinse it off. He like is drying his arms with a paper towel covered in yellow soap. And let me tell you, the best feeling about getting out of the OR is that you get to take off all the protective equipment that you have on and just wash your hands so nice regular soap and water and you feel drop your arms down yes 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 so but that's what i saw and i was like what are they what (laughs) so So funny (laughs) yeah yeah definitely 
So overall, this case was super interesting and I think brought up a lot of good points on medical versus not medical reasons for having this kind of paralysis and sensory symptoms. Definitely. And I loved all your quick catches of the surgery because I think that they made some funny choices and mistakes in their surgery on this one. Yeah, this was a funny one. Before we take our mid-episode break, would you like to give our fun fact? Oh, I would love to. So this episode and all the other episodes that we see, Bailey, the chief resident, is shown to be such a realist Mm -hmm. and so no-nonsense. And I was looking into fun facts about the show, and it turns out that Bailey is actually based on Shonda Rhimes' mom. No way! Yes. So according to an interview that Shonda Rhimes gave to O Magazine, she said that her mom is very no-nonsense, and so is Dr. Bailey. Dr. Bailey says stuff like, these people are nasty. All they think about is sex while we're trying to save lives here. And she <laughs> and she goes, quote, my mother is definitely that kind of realist. <laughs> that is too funny. Yes, the chief of surgery has been on the show since season one and came straight from Rhyme's real life. Wow, and we really do see Bailey in this episode kind of showing that with this breast cancer patient mm-hmm. telling Izzy that she needs to detach herself more, that she's mm-hmm. too involved she can't let her personal life get in this and it also in talking to the patient and kind of giving her like straightforward answers to her question she is definitely a point person believe it or not stevens we have to follow protocol take a breath but if the avm looks like it's gonna blow we fix it right if the man needs to be fixed we'll fix him in due time why are you moving so quickly you get too involved with your patients, Izzy. Why you make everything so personal? Definitely. And we see with the other characters as well, just the character development that they go through in the show is so good. And especially Bailey, she just becomes even more and more straight to the point and no nonsense. I love it. Yeah, that is a great catch. All right. Well, we will see you right after our break and then we will get into our next topic. Yes, ma'am. Stay tuned. <laughs> Enjoying the podcast? We want to hear from you. Visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us questions about anything medicine in Grey's Anatomy. You can also follow our socials, stay up to date on the latest Myth vs. Med events, and join our email list from our website or link tree at linktr.ee slash mythvsmedpod. You can also help support the podcast along with medical and scientific research by making a donation. Now back to the show! All right. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. What is our next topic, Olivia? So our next topic is going to be revolving around the teenage girl that came in with some heart problems. So we see this patient. Her name is Devo. And she came into the hospital after having had a root canal and then couldn't stop bleeding afterwards. And at the hospital, they detected a heart murmur that they named as mitral regurgitation. And then she was also diagnosed with von Willebrand disease, which made her ineligible for the mechanical heart valve they would need to give her to treat her infection. Lots of stuff going on. There were so many things happening with this patient. But the thing that we wanted to focus on in this episode was the heart infection piece or what we call endocarditis. Yeah. So do we want to start with some quick catches first? Yeah, I'd love to. So when she first comes in and Alex is presenting, I did think that this was kind of funny because it just it felt like such a classic case when he says that she comes in status post root canal with a new heart murmur associated with fever. Mm-hmm. And this is something that is so textbook classic test question. <laughs> yeah. Like I wrote down, did somebody say strep viridens? Which is basically... <laughs> 
a very common bug that we are tested on that is commonly associated with dental procedures. Mm -hmm. This bug can get into your heart and cause an infection, especially when you might have some valvular damage. Yeah. And I love this because I think they just like kind of veered off what their normal treatment plan would be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So they say that she is on antibiotics at the beginning. Alex says, you know, she came in with this heart murmur associated with fever. She's now afebrile on antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And the wild thing about this patient is she just seems pretty healthy. Like she seems pretty fine. Oh my God, she looks fine. And we see Alex and Burke both saying things like she needs this surgery to save her life. Mm-hmm. You know, She's gonna this die. could kill her. They're so worried. And there are several ways that it could be possible that she could be very sick, given definitely what we know about her health. However, she just is not showing any symptoms. No, no, she looks totally fine. So like Olivia said, endocarditis, you generally see very sick patients. Mm-hmm. Or likewise, maybe her endocarditis isn't as bad, but the issue is more about her valve itself. And Alex keeps talking about how she has this very severe mitral regurge. But when you have very severe mitral regurge, that causes very severe symptoms. In this case, you're going to have blood that is backing up to your lungs from your heart. You're going to have difficulty breathing, Mm -hmm. maybe too much fluid in your body. A whole host of things that this patient is not experiencing. If this is a patient who is emergently in need of a valve transplant, she should not be so well. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about this when we go into treatment because it's a very pivotal decision point when you reach the point of saying, okay, this patient's so sick that we need to take them into surgery. And this girl does not look like she need surgery but they do show us an echo what does the echo show us they do i was gonna say that was my one good quick catch for this case which was when alex is doing the echo the echocardiogram which is the imaging of the heart he is talking to the patient and he says your mitral regurge is getting worse and then they show the echo screen and it actually shows a real echo let's go they show what we call doppler ultrasound so this shows the direction of the blood flow and they show us what is called an apical four chamber view so it is a view of the heart on ultrasound where you can see all four chambers and then you see this blood that is backflowing from the left ventricle to the left atrium which is exactly what you would see in mitral regurgitation so there we go they did something right here yes yes good job grace yes so in terms of actually understanding what endocarditis is so When we talk about endocarditis, what we're referring to is infectious endocarditis, and it's the inflammation of the endocardium, the inner lining of the heart, as well as the valves that are in your heart, and Mm -hmm. valves separate each of the four chambers of your heart. And so in this patient, again, we found out that she has something called mitral regurgitation, which means that her mitral valve in her heart is affected. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, risk factors for getting endocarditis includes things that involve damage to the valves or to the heart. So Mm -hmm. it's more common in people who have prosthetic valves or mechanical valves already in their heart, who have heart disease, who are using intravenous drugs. And so there's bacteria getting inoculated or presented into their bloodstream. Mm -hmm. Anyone who has really long-standing intravenous lines, so any IVs or catheters, are also Mm -hmm. at higher risk. And so this is normally what we think of for risk factors for endocarditis. Sounds like this patient just had a dental procedure and then presented with this fever and new murmur. Yeah, she doesn't seem to have a lot of risk factors, but it is not particularly. If I had to guess, I would predict that this patient probably had some kind of congenital valvular disease. She probably was Mm -hmm. born with a mitral valve that wasn't functioning as 
as expected yeah. before she had the dental procedure. And then once that bacteria got into her bloodstream, it really kind of amplified that. Yeah. So endocarditis is really when bacteria that gets into your bloodstream attaches to valves in your heart. We call these vegetations. So mm-hmm. these growths of bacteria in your valves make it harder for them to open and close correctly and then cause a whole host of symptoms. The symptoms that we normally look for with bacterial endocarditis or infectious endocarditis are things that this patient really didn't look like they had. So no. one mnemonic that I really like to use and that has always worked for me to remember is something called from Jane. I don't know if you've hmm. heard this one, Anna. I have. Have I? Maybe I have. <laughs> I might have. Yeah. So it's, it's from Jane. So it stands for fever. We saw that in this patient. So having yes. a fever. It goes raw spots, Osler nodes, murmur, Janeway lesions, anemia, nail bed hemorrhages, and embolism. And we'll put a little picture up for you guys to go over this. But really, the only things that this patient presented with was the fever and then the new murmur. That was really all they talked about in this patient. Normally, you're looking for different things. And in terms of diagnosis for this, there's actually very specific criteria that you're looking for. We call them Duke criteria. Mm -hmm. And you have to meet all these different criteria to be, quote unquote, diagnosed with endocarditis. Yeah. And generally, these patients do present pretty sick. And we didn't see this patient immediately on presentation. They did say that she was febrile when she came in, but it Mm kind of seems like they just put her on antibiotics and now she's chilling. Yeah, exactly. But the things that you normally do for diagnosis to actually figure out whether this is endocarditis or not, the first thing that you always do is get a blood culture. So drawing blood from the patient before you give them antibiotics, because if you can imagine, if you give antibiotics to a patient who has an infection, there's risk of the antibiotics just completely clearing up the bacteria so quickly before you get the blood culture and then yeah. you won't know what, what kind is of causing organism. it. Yeah, right. exactly. You can also get blood counts to look at any signs of infection or inflammatory markers such as ESR and CRP. Those are really popular to use for something mm-hmm. like this. And then you can also just get metabolic panels to look for electrolyte derangements that these patients might have because you can correct these with fluids and supplements and things like this, which can be important. And then one thing that they talked about in the show was getting a coagulation panel. So as we find out in this patient, she has something called von Willebrand's disease. And this just means that you bleed easier due to lack of important clotting factors in your blood. What Burke is telling Alex to do is, hey, when you get the COAG panel, which stands for coagulation panel, Mm -hmm. you need to add bleeding time to the COAGs. And COAGs tells you if the blood and the factors in your blood are clotting too much or not enough. Yeah. I think that this is kind of a funny thing for Burke to say, just because they had already diagnosed her with von Willebrand's, which means they probably already got a lot of these coagulation labs and bleeding time does tend to be a pretty important part of this but Mm -hmm. given that they technically had already made this diagnosis it was weird to me that he was still asking for that yeah 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 not sure what they were getting them for yeah but the big dilemma that they ran into in this episode is that this patient is very religious and her religious beliefs go against getting a certain type of bioprosthetic valve so that means a valve that is transplanted from some type of animal into you when you're doing treatment for this again there's a very pivotal moment where you say, okay, this patient isn't being managed on the antibiotics that we're giving them. Mm -hmm. We need to go to surgery. Mm -hmm. And so this patient, they originally said, oh, she's not eligible for a normal mechanical valve, which is like an artificial valve, because she doesn't qualify for anticoagulation, which is a medication that helps to keep your blood from clotting. They use it when you have heart surgery. Well, and because she has this bleeding disorder, von Willebrand's, you don't want to give somebody a drug that's going to put them at higher risk of bleeding when she's already at high risk yes exactly and so i was confused about this because even if they do a bioprosthetic valve or like a porcine or bovine valve which is a pig or cow valve Mm -hmm. you still need anticoagulation for the surgery so i don't know what they were talking about when they're like you know she 
doesn't qualify for anticoagulation, we need to do something different. But basically, she says, you know, because of my religious beliefs, you're not going to put a pig valve in me. I don't believe in that. It's not going to work. And then Alex goes, well, shoot, well, I got to figure something else now. He does all this research and says, bada bing, bada boom, look at this. Oh my gosh, it's a bovine valve. I can totally use this for my patient. <laughs> Immediately goes to the patient and gives this whole hoorah speech of, oh my gosh, I found this perfect valve replacement for you. It's a perfect option. And they're like, great. You could see Burke standing in the back, just what furious. What the hell is he doing? <laughs> he was so furious. What a crazy thing to do. And Burke says point blank to him, did you just offer a new treatment option, a new procedure to this patient's family without consulting your attending? Yeah, the person who's doing the surgery. Crazy thing to do. And it sounds like from Alex's research, he said, oh yeah, it's a newer procedure, so not many people have done it. But he automatically goes, oh yeah, Burke will do this Burke for you. Burke will do it. And at the end of the day, he does. But he has this whole speech with Alex where he goes, you do not tell patients what treatment is happening. You come to me first. We make a decision together. At the end of the day, I'm the one who's performing the surgery, so I make the decision. And kicks him off the case, but then Christina manages to kind of talk him back and say, you know, try new things. It's good to grow and get out of your comfort zone. And he's like, all right, fine. Alex, you're on the surgery with me. I thought that was pretty funny because honestly, I think Alex deserved to be kicked off that case. That was a bold thing to do. And all of his comments, it was just really weird. The way that he was interacting with the patient, the patient was praying. He's like, does the wall ever bow back? Yeah, I literally wrote, Alex, have some respect. Alex, what is happening? Throughout this whole episode, and you know, guys, we've talked a lot about the difficulties that come up with patient medical decision making, shared decision making. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's not always agreement. And we're going to talk about this more with the breast cancer patient as well. Mm -hmm. But Alex, in this case, we have this patient who has these strong religious beliefs, who has these strong desires about what she wants for her health care and mm-hmm. alex is just so rude to her the whole episode like at the beginning yes. he sees her skirt and he's like what are you amish like <laughs> so what kind of name is uh devo anyway he's a rocker my parents did too much blow i call myself esther nice skirt esther what are you amish get a life haven't you ever seen an orthodox jew Okay, I do have to say one of my favorite moments that just cracked me up was when this girl is talking to her parents and her parents want her to have this surgery with the pig valve and she's saying to them, you guys aren't even real Jews. You don't even like candles on Shabbat. You don't even know the Passover plagues. And Alex just starts naming Alex them. Alex starts naming them. He's like, even I know that. <laughs> and then Burke starts talking to the patient and the family. They're like kind of moving on and it goes back to Alex and Alex <laughs> is still just sitting there trying to think of them, trying to name all the plagues. And I just thought it was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> You guys don't even light candles Friday nights. You don't even know all the Passover plagues. Oils, vermin, pestilence, even I know that. Miss Freeman, I appreciate your extreme religious convictions. Fire, hail, slain, first. So funny. He's like, vermin, locusts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so funny. funny. Oh my gosh. Oh my so like, God. obviously he has experience with the religion side of things, but he's just not respectful in her decision and her way of going about it. So Well, and they have yeah. a conversation about this where she basically says, like, I'm putting my trust in God. Mm-hmm. And he says to her, so God wants you to die, huh? And she mm-hmm. says, well, he wants me to be passionate in what I believe in and you don't believe in anything. Mm-hmm. And it was this interesting moment of, I think, maybe him realizing a little bit just how much this means to her and kind of...
kind of where her decision making has come from mm-hmm. and how their beliefs differ in that and yeah. you know he, Alex maybe knows some about religion but is not very religious and mm-hmm. is maybe having this realization about just how important this is to her yeah and I think it also gave him more insight into how he needs to conduct himself around her because you have patients every day who have different beliefs rather that be religious spiritual political I mean literally so many different aspects of patients lives are going to be different from yours and so you really need to know how to interact with them in a respectful yeah. way that still gets them the best care possible okay also though Alex when he was doing the echo and examining her and she goes are you hitting on me and he goes do you want, <gasps> do you me, want to? me to and I was like <gasps> I was like okay I'm sorry this is a, like a fireable offense she's a minor had this patient <sighs> reported this like, my doctor said that he was hitting on me and oh, made this comment to me. I was like, oh, this is so cringy. Oh, God. It was you can't gross. say things like that. Ew. Yeah, so gross. And the other thing that I thought was funny in this episode is that she also knows that he's called Evil Spawn. And so I just so thought that was funny. so fitting. Loved that. He deserved that one. Yeah, he definitely did. Mm-hmm. Alex. Mm-hmm. Alex, what are we going to do with you? <laughs> but at the end of the day, Burke does have this realization that he's going to do the surgery. He says, you know, I'm going to grow from this. He uses a video feed from a doctor from Cleveland Clinic who is an expert at this procedure and Burke ends up replacing her valve. He does. I have a quick catch from this surgery. Get our little bubble sound back at it because this was another scrubbing error. Oh, yes. Burke might be our worst scrubber yet. Sorry, Burke. So (laughs) we see as the surgery is starting, Burke is standing near the patient and he's holding a towel, presumably from drying his hands after scrubbing in. And it is important when you dry your hands for scrubbing that you don't want to use the towel to touch something dirty and then put that back Mm -hmm. onto clean space on your hands. So there's a method to using one hand to dry one arm and then kind of flipping it over and using a different Mm -hmm. clean part of the towel to dry your other hand. Burke is like holding with both hands the <laughs> towel all crumpled up in a ball and kind of like playing with it i think his hands uh-huh. are touching and uh-huh. then he proceeds to drop his hands down like we said earlier not part of the sterile field drops mm-hmm. his hands down by his waist and then he goes straight there and starts putting his gown on yeah yep. like, burke Come on. Totally unsterile procedure here. Not doing great. Yeah. Well, I think that wraps it up for the endocarditis case. It was, again, super interesting. I think definitely brought up a lot of good discussion. Totally. Should we talk a little bit more about ethics throughout this episode? Because I think we had a few other things. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The main thing that I wanted to talk about was the patient who has breast cancer and is trying to make this very difficult decision about whether to go through with treatment for the cancer Mm -hmm. and lose her baby or to keep the baby knowing the risks that she is presenting with the cancer. I think important context to put into this too is that at the beginning of the episode we see Christina going to a clinic where she's inquiring about when she can come in to have a medical abortion and this whole episode she's really in her own head thinking all these things trying to figure out what to do and then she's presented with this patient who has a basically an impossible choice of saying whose life do you want to save your babies or your own and I think the whole time Christina's really in the back of her head thinking oh my gosh I'm in a similar situation where I'm thinking of making this decision but for this patient it's 20 times harder but she just it does not come across well when she's talking to the patient no and I mean this is exactly the kind of interaction I think Christina was trying to avoid when she got off the case of the quote-unquote psychic patient 
but ended up now in a situation that was even more closely personal to her, which yeah. does present difficulties, but just the bedside manner is so not there. And, and and the patient even said something. She's like, wow, your bedside manner is great, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and the thing is, I actually think that this was one of the more borderline, ethically debatable things that Christina has said when it comes to her poor bedside manner. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, I think that there is validity to when you are presenting a patient with difficult news mm-hmm. to try to be to the point. And you know, we yeah. talked about how Bailey's good at this too. Explaining these are the risks, these are the benefits, this is what you're looking at, this is what mm-hmm. your mortality looks like. These are your options. Yeah, exactly. Providing the patient with that information in a straightforward way without inserting too much emotion and personal things that are going to cloud this patient's judgment and mm-hmm. make it harder for this patient to process the information and make a decision. Yeah. And even Bailey trying to kind of empathize with the patient says to her, I understand how difficult this is. And the patient mm-hmm. says to her, like, hell you do. And I think that that is something to be careful with when you're talking with patients, trying mm-hmm. to be like, oh, I understand how you feel when you really don't. Yeah. There's very few situations where that statement would be true. Right. And I, I think that that can feel very insensitive. And so mm-hmm. I think that in some ways at the beginning, the way that Christina was presenting this to the patient was almost a better outlook. Mm-hmm. But then I think it just kind of escalated or I guess just got worse and worse from there yeah. because I think that each time that she was talking to this patient in terms of making a decision, she was trying to make her see things from her point of view when in reality again it's it's the patient's decision at the end of the day and, and their loved one's decision and what they want for their life and in Christina's head she was thinking this is a very clear decision it's your life or your baby's so why are you choosing your life and she just right. couldn't really wrap her head around the fact that she would choose the baby's life over her own. I think this is a particularly hard situation too because as the patient mentions if I'm going to terminate the pregnancy and I'm going to mm-hmm. have this treatment she was basically say I, I don't know if I'm going to make it through that I don't know if I'll survive the treatment anyway and then we still don't have the baby and she talks about how her mother also died from breast cancer and she's worried about the same thing and I actually think that this goes both ways you know she could terminate her pregnancy and not survive but there's also the chance that she decides to keep the pregnancy and still has issues with that pregnancy given the rest of her health condition so as we've Mm -hmm. mentioned she is on the older side for pregnancy she is 47 years old which we called advanced maternal age there are exponentially higher risks of a pregnancy at that age and so even without the cancer there are things that we would be very worried about with her health during this pregnancy and wondering if this baby is even going to survive and be healthy during this pregnancy and so there's a lot of things that you just can't predict about how Mm -hmm. this case would go no matter what decision the patient makes and I think that that's part of why it's so important for this decision to be made by the patient based on what their priorities are rather than trying to guess what medicine is going to actually happen exactly and I love I love the word priority that you used it really is focused on what the patient wants, what they're wanting out of this treatment, their life, the priorities in their life. And so focusing on that can really help the doctors and the patients guide their decision is really thinking about what priorities they have and their values and their beliefs. Well, and Christina says to her when she's giving these speeches about how she wants her to have the treatment, she starts to say, look, if you want to live, and then the patient interrupts her and says, honey, that's what I'm doing. Because Mm -hmm. for her, living is living whatever years she has left of her life with her husband and her baby. And Mm -hmm. that is her priority. 
Yeah, yeah. So her way of living is different than another person's way of living. And I think Christina was trying to wrap her head around that idea. The patient says when she's leaving, she's talking to Christina about her decision. And Christina's like, why are you telling me all of this? Like, you've made your decision. And she says, I just want you to understand. Christina goes, well, I don't. don't. And she walks out. She walks out. (laughs) Christina, we were just talking about this too, is that Christina apparently has this tendency to say something controversial, blunt, whatever you want to call it, and then just walk out the door. Walks out of the room. Or a patient says something that she doesn't like, storms out. (laughs) Goodbye, goodbye. So I think that this whole interaction was super important in terms of her growth, and we'll see if it has an effect, but... Yeah, she has some maturity to gain still. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think it was a really thought-provoking case because definitely. I was trying to put myself in that situation and it's so hard to know what you would do until it's you're an impossible in that situation. Choice. Yeah, it's, it's an, an impossible, impossible choice. choice. And Christina says that to Burke when he yeah. is trying to figure out what he's doing about his surgery. She oh, says, yeah. She says, you have a solution. This is solvable. There are problems that aren't solvable and this is one yeah, of them. Exactly, exactly. So I think that was a great ethics case. So my end takeaway was just kind of a funny one. I think that it's really interesting going back to this psych patient, the way we see throughout this episode he has seizures he's saying he's having psychic visions Mm -hmm. medically we have no explanation for said psychic visions the doctors don't really believe that this is the case but somehow he seems to know these things about everyone that just how could he know oh yeah absolutely no way it's crazy and in the end the patient has the surgery he still has his psychic visions very exciting mm-hmm. he tells izzy how to finish her recipe Love it. and we never get any explanation for how mm-hmm. this is possible or what yeah. is going on with him does he have something psychiatric is there something else going on and sometimes you really do just get these kind of medical mysteries that you never get an answer for yeah and i yeah. definitely had some struggles with this at times in my clinical rotations where Someone would come in with some problem and we wouldn't know what was causing it and we would be trying to do all of this workup and figure out what was going on and try to figure out what a treatment would be without really knowing what was happening. And then either somehow the patient just gets better or treatment works, but we don't know why. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just don't get an answer. And that can be kind of unsettling. But the reality is there's just a lot of things in medicine that we still don't know. And sometimes we see these things that we just can't explain. And I think that that can be kind of stressful, but also kind of cool. Yeah, I always think of it as something that we haven't learned yet but hopefully in the future we'll learn totally so i don't know i think that's a really good and takeaway mine was more when you have these patients who have these really strong religious spiritual values beliefs whatever you want to call them Mm -hmm. is that it's so important when you're talking to these patients and thinking of treatment plans and diagnosis and all these things Mm -hmm. is really tailoring that treatment and that course of action to that patient in particular definitely and so we saw this we saw this in the patient with the heart valve we saw this in the patient with the breast cancer and Mm -hmm. the pregnancy Mm -hmm. and i think it's just so important to keep in mind that every patient's going to be so different and so i think it presents such a unique opportunity with each patient that you see to really tailor their experience to what they are looking for i thought that was super cool and then just one more thing that i want to talk about and i just want to touch on it it's not like an end takeaway but it was my favorite part of this episode is that meredith and derek throughout this entire episode are having these conversations about getting to know one another and Derek is saying you know we'll get to learn these things and Meredith's like no I want to know now and first of all her face at the beginning of the episode was hilarious when she was asking Derek to tell her things and he just wasn't and her face was just so fed up she's like like, are you kidding but 
basically, Derek does end up bringing Meredith up to the, the land that he owns. Oh, Derek. He spouts out all these facts about his life, and you just see Meredith walk toward the trailer. Derek has no idea what she's thinking, but you see his face is just like the most, it's like the cutest, most longing face. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. He's just so hopeful. And then she turns around and gives him the biggest smile. And then he's so, so happy. Cute. And then they walk to the it's trailer. So <laughs> I know what he says at some point. It's when, it was when they were inappropriately scrubbing out that Meredith <laughs> was kind of like, how did you know? How did you figure this out? And he mm-hmm. gives the speech about how sometimes you just know. You know, you keep taking everything on faith. How do you know what's real and what's not? You just do. Uh-huh. You know, he's talking about the patient, but we know he's really talking about Meredith. You know, some people would call this a relationship. Time where you exchange keys, leave your toothbrush over. Who? Who would call it that? Me. I would. And I'm supposed to believe you. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I I loved that part in the episode because you just saw how genuine Derek feels about Meredith and I think vice versa. And then we get to see them develop even more. So I know we see this cute like development of the relationship. And for anybody who has seen the show before, we know that we have our next episode coming up, which is our season finale. And we will have some big developments there. Oh, yes. Plot twist after plot twist. Yes. Well, we can't wait to see you guys. It will be in two weeks that we will be releasing our season finale, episode nine, with a special guest, surgical intern Abby. Yes. We can't wait to see you there. We are so excited for you guys to keep following along and make sure to reach out to us if you have any questions or comments and we'll make sure to give you a shout out on the show. We'll see you next time. Bye guys. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We hope you leave knowing more than you did before about what is myth and what is medicine. If you're curious about where we're getting our information, you can check out our sources in the episode description. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform and share it with friends. Don't forget to visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us a question, follow our socials, subscribe to our email list, and make a donation. We appreciate your support, and we hope you continue to follow along with us on this journey.